0: You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, Jesus is having dinner with a bunch of Pharisees, and he's already given them some instructions about the Sabbath and about kindness and humility, picturing for them the grace of God. And then he has for them the parable that we heard just a few minutes ago, The parable of the Great Supper. Now, the parable is pretty easy to understand once we get a a beat for it. The man who has the great feast is God the Father. Whoa. The uh The man who has the feast is God the Father. The feast itself is the kingdom of heaven, the joy of knowing Jesus and the forgiveness of all of our sins. It's a feast that's prepared by the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. So this feast, this banquet, is the church where the gospel is preached, where the sacraments of Jesus are handed out. The servants who go out to invite the people, to those who are invited to the feast, the servants are the prophets and the apostles. And those who are invited are the Jewish people. And especially here in the text, the invited are the religious rulers of the people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the, the priests, and those who had busied themselves with Moses and the Torah and God's law. They are those who refuse to hear the gospel. They are those who reject Christ and His mercy. And they do not taste the feast the Lord prepared. Those who are in the streets of the city, the lanes and the streets and, you know, all around town, those that are poor and crippled and blind and lame, these, these are the Jewish people who were despised by the Pharisees. They were the sinners and those who were unclean, people that seemed far away from the kingdom of God for one reason or another. And then when they've all come into the feast, the messengers go out into the highways and into the countryside. And this is, for us, a picture of the evangelism of the world. That these people who are strangers to the people of God, strangers to Israel, these Gentiles, are now gathered into the feast. Now, this parable, which seemingly ends... On a good note, almost, on a a feast that's full of the most unexpected people, Jesus wraps up with a bow with this chilling declaration. The master of the feast says, None of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. So Jesus is sounding a warning to those who are sitting at the table with him. Those, you, you, Pharisees, you are the invited. The feast is made for you. But you, if you are confident in your own goodness, if you consider yourself to be so holy that you don't need repentance, then you will not taste of the feast. Your refusal to hear the gospel, says Jesus, means that you will be condemned. So far, the parable. And I think in the text, there's a lot for us to meditate on, not only for our instruction, but also for our warning and also for our comfort. As Jesus ends this parable and leaves ringing in our ears this stern warning that even the invited will not enter into the feast, he reminds us that there will be a judgment at the end of the world, even at the end of our own lives. And that those who do not believe will taste God's wrath and be condemned. Now, the Bible clearly teaches this doctrine. It is the doctrine of hell. It is the truth that those who depart this life without faith in Christ go to an everlasting torment, to a place of darkness and burning where the fire is never quenched. This truth is perhaps the most difficult of all of the truths of the Scripture. And as we hear it and read it and think about it, we recoil at the teaching. We don't think that eternal condemnation is what sinners deserve. And this is, I suppose, because we don't know how bad we ourselves are. And we don't know how bad our neighbor is. The depth of our own sin is hidden from us. The old theologians used to talk about sin like, a, like leprosy. And one of the things with leprosy is that it destroys the nerve endings uh, that, that are affected by the skin disease. So that if you have leprosy in your hand, for example, you couldn't feel if you put your hand in fire or if you cut your hand or even if one of your fingers fell off. You don't even know it. You can't feel the pain of those sorts of things. So that one of the marks of our own sinfulness is that we don't know how bad off we are. We don't know how profoundly sick we are. We don't know the depth of our own sin. Now we see the fruit of we see the fruit of original sin. I mean we see that when we feel temptation. Or or even when we sin, when we think and when we say and when we do things that are contrary to God's law. We we see ourselves sinning, that's the fruit of original sin. We see other people sinning against us. We see all the wrong and broken tragedies in this world. We see the the, the fruits of sin. We're dying people living in a dying universe. But the fruit of corruption is just that, the fruit. And the actual root of the thing is is so much worse. Original sin, that that clings to us and corrupts everything that we think and that we say and that we do, this original sin is hidden from us. And we can't see it. I suppose it's like an iceberg, you know, uh, the iceberg is, most of it is sitting under the water where you can't see it. You just see the tip of it. So we just see the very tip of our own sinfulness and the, and the big chunk of it, the worst part of it is hidden from us. Now this means that we have to be taught about original sin from the scriptures. The profound depths of our corruption have to be revealed to us and we have to believe it by faith and not by sight. So we trust the Scriptures that tell us that we really are that bad. Now, this is very practical theology, even though it might not seem like it. But have you ever wondered why? This is always a bit of a riddle to me, that when you ask people if they're going to heaven or if you have any conversation about anybody, about human nature, people will talk about how good they are, right? Uh, How how will you get to heaven? Well, I'm I'm a good person, right? And they'll not only talk about how good they are; they'll talk about how good people are in general. I think it's one of the marks of the enlightenment, the enlightened, uh, in, enlightened, the enlightened person in our own culture, that you confess the general goodness of humanity with things like that. And you've heard these cliches: "I've come, I've come to see the the goodness of all people. Everybody has something good in them," and things like this. Now, it seems to me that that statements like these are always ringing in the air at the strangest of times. So there's some sort of tragedy, you know, some sort of terrorist attack, or some, you know, some uh, a murderer has gone and killed a bunch of people, and now the news crew shows up on the scene, and they're interviewing people on the sidewalk about what just happened, and the people say, This enforces in my own mind how good people are. (laughs) It seems like it would be the opposite. But this is the mark of the enlightened person to confess the goodness of all people. The problem is that it's not true. We, We are not good. The Bible says no one is good. No, not even one. And it should be that our sins would point us to the truth that something is going very wrong in our hearts. But it just doesn't. There's a disconnect between what we see of our actions and what we can know about our own hearts. So that most people, even though they see the evidence of their sin and the sin of people around them, will still consider themselves and their neighbors to be good people. And and most theologies confess this and teach that humanity is basically good. And the result of this doctrine is what's most disturbing. You see, if we're mostly good, if we're basically good people, then our theology becomes simply you ought to do good things. This is why the person on the street who says I'm a pretty good person also thinks that they're going to get to heaven by doing good works. Those two things go together. And that's also the person... With the, th- with the theology that can't make any sense of hell. I mean, why, why, after all, should a basically good person suffer forever because of a few mistakes that they made in this life? I mean, how is it fair that a person who, for, for example, never heard the gospel and never had a chance, that they should suffer forever at the hands of God's wrath? Now, these questions grow out of our own ignorance about how bad we are. They are a result of the hiddenness of the doctrine of original sin. Now, maybe to pause just a brief moment and say that the fact that we don't taste and see every day the profound depth of our own sinfulness is in some ways a blessing to us. I mean, you remember how the Bible talks about uh, the danger of seeing God face to face? Nobody can see God and live And it's because God is so holy and we are so sinful that to look upon the face of God would simply mean that we would come undone. Well, I think there's a similar thing here with the doctrine of sin, that if we were to look upon the profound depths of our own sinfulness, then we would simply come undone. We couldn't live with ourselves. And if we could see the profound depths of the sinfulness of our neighbor, then society would come undone. We would never dare to be in the same room with each other. So in some ways, we can thank God that our sin is at least partially veiled. But this means that we have to trust the scriptures when they teach us how we, how it really is with us. That we have to walk by faith and not by sight and confess that we are sinners who deserve both God's temporal and eternal punishment. We have to believe the Bible that says that we are that bad, that we deserve God's wrath, and that hell is, in fact, fitting. The fitting end for sinners. I heard someone talking this last week. I think it maybe it was Pastor Flammy with a prediction. I'm not sure, but it was, it was smart enough and wise enough to be Pastor Flammy. It was uh, that in the years to come, the teaching of hell will be the touchstone of the church that still believes the Bible. In other words, the world and the devil, you know this, are always tempting God's church to stop believing and preaching the fullness of the Lord's truth. And the pressure is on, really it's always on, to silence the preaching of God's word and especially the preaching of hell, the preaching of judgment, the preaching of God's wrath against sin and against sinners. But we know that the truth of God's word is not for us to pick and choose. It is for us to believe and to teach and to confess and to preach and to trust. So it's important that we confess this eternal judgment. If the doctrine of hell goes missing, then the scriptures themselves start to fall apart. If sinners, for example, have not deserved God's wrath, then what in the world was Jesus doing on the cross? Or if there's no hell, then what, in fact, does Jesus save and rescue us from? If there is no eternal wrath, then there must be no original sin. And if there is no original sin, then we are pushed to the pride of our own efforts to save ourselves. And we are pulled away from the kindness of Jesus, our Savior. So with trembling hearts... We stand where the Scripture stands. We trust the Lord's Word. And we heed the warning of this parable. None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And while we confess that sinners deserve God's wrath, and while we confess that we are sinners, we also notice that something else is happening in this parable. Remember the people in the parable who were invited to the feast and who made excuses? One bought a field. Another had new oxen that they had to go test drive. (laughs) Another had just gotten married. They were not skipping the feast because they had a lot of sins to go and commit. They were skipping the feast because they had too much work to do. Now, now, this is the mark of the Pharisees. They're so busy with their own good works that they miss the Lord's invitation. They miss they the feast because of their goodness. There is a great danger, then, in, knowing, in not knowing how bad we are, it, we, we, that we miss the preaching of the law, and it is that we don't know our own need that we are left to trust ourselves, our own works, as if we could accomplish something through our own efforts. But when we confess our sin, when we acknowledge that we deserve God's wrath, when we believe what the Bible says, that there is no good in us, then this is our comfort. The poor, the blind, the lame, those who aren't doing any works at all, just sitting in the hedges, (laughs) these come into the feast. These are the sinners that know that they're sinners. The outcasts who know that they should not have a seat at this great Lord's feast. These are the humble. These are the repentant. These are those who have faith to hear and believe the invitation. And these are those who hunger to rejoice in this banquet. For while, dear dear saints, it is true that we all deserve hell because of our sin, we do not earn heaven by our own works or efforts. Eternal life is a gift. Salvation is by grace alone by God's pure kindness and mercy, so that this feast, the Lord's feast, is not for the pure, it's not for the holy, it's not for the exalted or the accomplished, the Pharisee, the proud or the good. It is for the poor and the wretched and the miserable and the blind and the weak. It is for sinners Because this is a feast of mercy. This is a feast for sinners. This is a feast for you. The death of Jesus has opened this door. The blood of Jesus has made us worthy. The sacrifice of Jesus has set the table. The resurrection of Jesus has filled the feast with life and hope and peace and joy. And the invitation to this feast was sounded in your baptism so that even now we are not waiting for the feast but we have come to it to the joy of knowing that God the Father has spent His wrath on His Son Jesus that He has for you in the waters of baptism extinguished the fires of hell And that in His resurrection, which opens to you the way of eternal life, the gaping mouth of the grave has been shut. You have come to the feast of the gospel. The good news of Jesus. The kindness of God. The promise and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the joy of knowing that your heavenly Father delights in you. This is our comfort, and this is our peace. And dear saints, it is a peace that will have no end. In the name of Jesus, amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.